So first of all, I want to start class off by praying to Hashem that in the merit of our Torah study together and the merit of all the Torah study that's going on around the world, the good deeds that people are doing, the tzedakah people are giving, the kindness people are showing to each other, the prayers that everybody prays, Hashem should take that all to himself and bless the Jewish people with only open and revealed goodness. Everybody who needs a refuah shalima should have a refuah shalima right now. Nobody else should be sick. And Mashiach should come right away. Now, the reason why we're doing this chapter, even though we were in the middle of chapter 26 when we paused for our Pesach break, which now we're doing a class again before Pesach, is because chapter 36 really describes what is so important about Mashiach's coming. And, I mean, the world is pregnant with the idea of Mashiach right now. It's so in the air. I felt like we had to go down this path and examine what's so important about Mashiach's coming. Because Mashiach's coming is classified as one of the 13 principles of faith. Maimonides classifies that as one of the 13 principles of faith. What is a principle of faith? I mean, we have 613 mitzvot. To choose 13 means that these 13 things, these 13 principles, which Maimonides chose, are things that the rest of our Torah and mitzvah observance depends on. For example, to believe that Hashem is the only creator. That makes sense, that the rest of our Torah and mitzvot depends on us believing that He is the only creator. To believe that the Torah is divine. That makes sense. We need to believe that the Torah is divine so we properly keep the mitzvot. But why are we saying that belief in Mashiach's coming is a principle of faith? It means everything else that we do in terms of Torah and mitzvot depends on our belief and awaiting his arrival. In this chapter, we're going to come to understand the reason why Hashem created the world and therefore the reason why believing in Mashiach's coming is so important. We're going to learn in this chapter that Hashem created the world with a purpose in mind. And that purpose was so that he can have a dwelling place down here below, that the truth that he is the only reality, that he is the only existence, that there is no space devoid of him. And remember we said that Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad means that not only is there no other God besides Hashem, that of course, but there's actually no reality outside of Hashem. When Mashiach comes, we're going to feel that. We're going to know that. We're going to sense that with all of our fleshly being, that there is no other existence besides for Hashem. So that's the purpose of creation. The purpose of creation is that there will be a dwelling place for Hashem down here below where the truth of his reality is going to be apparent. And that's going to happen when Mashiach comes. So Mashiach's coming is not just some side idea. People think of it as like a reward. We work really hard and then Hashem says, well, you made it. Now you get Mashiach. It's actually, besides that, that's what we're working towards. And that's why it's so important that we keep this in mind. That's why our Torah and mitzvot now depends on it. Because when you know what you're working towards, your quality of work is different. Take a doctor. Let's say a doctor says, I love what I do so much. I don't even have to get paid. You think, wow, the guy's an angel. He's a tzaddik. He loves helping people so much that he doesn't even have to get paid for his work. 
Okay, so that's where we're thinking of the pay as his reward. But what if the guy says, love what I do so much, I don't even care if the patient gets better. <laughs> At that point, you don't think of him as an angel. You just think of him as a nutcase. He doesn't know what being a doctor is all about. So if we think of Mashiach's coming in terms of a reward, then somebody might think it doesn't, not only isn't it bad if he doesn't wait for his coming, he might even be good. He might be someone who's desiring to serve Hashem with not any reward in mind. Isn't that what our sages admonished us? Don't be like a servant who serves his master in order to receive a reward. So Mashiach's coming is not just about a reward. There's something much deeper in Mashiach's coming, and that is fulfilling the purpose and creation. That is in the doctor who wants his patient to get healed. The doctor who doesn't care if his patient gets healed is the doctor who has no idea what being a doctor is about. It's like the construction worker who says, I love what I do so much, I don't care if the house gets built. We're building a house right now. If we don't care if the house gets built, there's something very off. There's something off with the quality of what we do. And this is similar to the idea of a general who's in charge of the army. So there's two ways he can go about it. He can just tell his soldiers, hey, guys, see the guys in the red shirts? They're our enemies. Shoot them. Okay. The general said, shoot them. We can shoot them. But their heart's not going to be in it. They won't have any idea of the strategy of the plan. What does victory look like? But if he says to them a little bit differently, he says, hey, you guys, you see the guys in the red shirts? Hi, Regina. You see the guys in the red shirts? They're our enemies. They want to capture our freedom. They want to take our land. They want to cap- capture the essence of who we are. If we don't shoot them, they'll shoot us first. So see the guys in the red shirts? Shoot them. Now the soldiers are in it differently. It's not just they're doing something mechanically, but actually the essence of who they are is invested in winning over the guys in the red shirts. So when we know that our purpose in Torah and mitzvahs is drawing down the divine light into this world to the extent that at one point, it's just all going to explode. Reality as we know it now is not going to be anymore. It's going to be the true reality. Realizing that Hashem is the only existence, and that's what we're working towards in every act of mitzvah. And every time we study Torah, our intent here is to draw down divine lights so that we now reach the purpose of creation. It's going to be a whole different way of fighting. We're going to be doing it with enthusiasm. We have a goal in mind. We realize what the purpose is. We're going to realize that with every time we study Torah, we're drawing down more of the divine into this world. Every time we do a mitzvah, we're uncovering the, the secret that really Hashem is the only reality. So with this in mind, we're going to begin chapter 36. In the previous chapter, I don't know if you have it printed out or not. I tried screen share last time. Here, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put participants on mute unless there's a question. So this way the sound is good. In the previous chapter, the Alter Rebbe began to explain why the observance of practical mitzvot is the ultimate purpose of Torah and of one's spiritual service to Hashem. This practical aspect is underscored by the conclusion of the verse, for the thing is very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. So remember that the entire Tanya is based on this one verse in the Torah. And that is, For this matter, the Torah and its mitzvot, is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. And the Altar said, in this book, I'm going to explain to you how indeed it is very near. Because the Torah didn't just say, it's very easy for you to mechanically keep whatever I tell you without being 
intellectually and emotionally invested. The Torah said, it's so easy for you, it's so within reach that you can keep it in your mouth and in your heart. This is something that you can align your identity with. So we explored different parts of this verse. Chapter 35, the Alter Rebbe started to explain that you may do it. And actually, if you look at it very carefully, it wasn't the thing is very near to you in your house, the thing is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart and in your actions. It was actually in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Meaning that you may do it is even the purpose of in your mouth and in your heart. That seemed to be the crux of the whole sentence. That practical mitzvot is the culmination of it all. That practical mitzvot are so, so important. They are the point of everything else in your mouth and in your heart. And he explained over there in chapter 35 that only mitzvot of the Zerb through action draw down the light of the Shekhinah upon one's animal soul and body rather than upon the divine soul alone, as do the mitzvot performed only in thought and speech. So when someone studies Torah, they draw down the divine presence upon their divine soul and somewhat over their body and the animal soul to some extent, to the extent that their body and animal soul is involved. But to really and truly draw down the Shekhinah upon the body and the animal soul, Torah study is not enough. We need physical, practical mitzvot. That's what we learned in chapter 35. But this does not answer one question satisfactorily. Why is the illumination of the body and animal soul so important that those practical mitzvot which accomplish this illumination should be considered one's primary objective? I get it that we need practical mitzvot in order to draw down the divine light over our body and our animal soul. We understand that. But what we didn't understand is why is it important to draw down the divine light over the body and the animal soul? Why isn't it enough to just draw down the divine light over the divine soul? Why does the body and the animal soul have to be involved? The Alter Rebbe addresses this question in chapter 36. He explains that Hashem's purpose in creation is that he might have a dwelling place in the lower realms, specifically in this physical world. In this world of doubled and redoubled spiritual darkness, his aim so light would radiate even more powerfully than it does in the higher spiritual realms through man's transforming the darkness into light. In man, the microcosm, the animal soul and the body are the lower realms. Therefore, the practical mitzvot which draw down the light of the Shekhinah upon them can constitute man's ultimate purpose. The divine light is already in the divine soul. True, when we study Torah, we do mitzvot, we draw down more divine light, greater, higher effusion that it did not have on its own. Whereas when it comes to the body and the animal soul, they on their own do not sense the divine at all. And when a person draws down the divine light over them, we are now drawing down the divine light into the lower realms. And we're going to see this is actually the purpose of creation. Furthermore, through the practical mitzvot and through their elevating effect on the body and animal soul, the material world in its entirety becomes a dwelling place for Hashem. This, however, properly belongs to the discussion in chapter 37. Okay, so now we're going to read the statement of our sages, and we're going to examine it. Vihine, wuda'as zais, maimarazal, shatachlis brias ailam hazeh, hu shenis ava hakadish baruchu, lihiais light, dira betachtainim. In a well-known statement, our rabbis declare that the purpose for which this world was created is that the Holy One, blessed be He, desired to have an abode in the lower realms. He desired that the essence of 
ain't so flight be revealed as it is, without veil or concealment, amidst the lower creations. Our sages use the word abode or dwelling place to describe such revelation, just as a man's home serves as an abode for his essence. So too is this world intended to be an abode for Hashem's essence. So let's look carefully at the statement of our sages. One thing we learn from the statement of our sages is that this world is not just a medium to achieve another purpose. It's not this is a world that's a medium that we do something here that leads to something else, which is the ultimate purpose. Actually, the purpose of creation is in this very world. This is a huge paradigm shift. And it's not just in this world, we're working hard, we're struggling, we have a dark side, we're going against it. We prevail, and then we reach something that is the purpose. No. The purpose in creation is right here in this world, this physical world. Hashem desires this world for itself. This world is the purpose. So that's something huge that we find out from the statement of our sages in the Medrash. Okay, but now we need to understand. He wants a dwelling place, and he wants it in the lower realms. And this is a desire. Now, when Hasidim asked the Alter Rebbe, why did Hashem have this desire? He answered them, if Ataiva is King Kasha, you can't ask a question about a desire. Now, that sounds funny, like, oh, come on, is that a joke? But think about yourself. When you really want something, if I ask you why, you can't explain it. Once you start explaining it, you're not speaking about the desire in its purest form. You're speaking about already a lower level of the desire, how you have to rationalize and explain it. But a true desire that you have at the essence of yourself, you can't explain. And our humanist experience is a reflection of the divine way of being. And Hashem had a desire, we can't understand why he had the desire. So to explain why he had the desire, we can't explain it. But we know the desire is. The desire is that he wanted a dwelling place in these lowest realms. Now a dwelling place is a way that you are when you don't have to be anything else but yourself. People put on all kinds of garments and all kinds of hats when they go out to interact with the world. But then they come home and they kick off their shoes and they just are who they are. So Hashem wanted to be his very self in these lowest realms. We're going to have to understand what it means higher and lower. We're going to have to take things out of our perspective and try to examine it as they are to the divine because we live in this box. We have our own way of dealing with things based on how we know reality to be. I read this amazing article by Dr. Velvel Green. He was a NASA scientist and he said he was part of the team of biologists. And he's like, what in the world is a biologist? I know what a zoologist is. A zoologist is somebody who knows something about animals. I know what a botanist is. That's somebody who knows something about plants. But a biologist? They only exist as high school teachers. There's no such thing as a biologist. A biologist is somebody who knows something about life. How do we even define life? We don't even know how to define life. They're supposed to look for life on Mars. He's the way we know about life is the way we know life on Earth. So we're looking for plants, for microbes, for animals. So if we go to Mars and we find a field of wildflowers, then we know we found life. But what if we don't find a field of wildflowers on Mars? Does that mean we haven't found life? 
No, because we don't know how life is defined on Mars. We're only looking at things. Sorry, you had a question. Let me unmute you. Okay, here I am. What if we haven't found a field of wildflowers on Mars? Does that mean that there's no life on Mars? No. We have no idea of how life is defined on Mars. We look at life from our earthly perspective. We know how to define life based on how we see life. We see animals, we see plants, and then we're more sophisticated, we get to see microbes. And that's how we define life in this world. So using that frame of reference of life, we only are taking what we know and trying to apply it to somewhere else where our definition may not apply and there might be a whole new set of rules. Now we're looking at the term lowest. And we're saying, indeed, what does lowest mean? When our sages said that God desired a dwelling place in the lowest realms, what does lowest mean? We're going to look at the next sentence and then we're going to um, delve into it more deeply. Excuse me if we get very philosophical. I'm trying to go back and wrap it up so that it all makes sense, hopefully. Behine. But surely before Hashem, meaning in His sight, the distinction of higher and lower is not valid. One world is no higher than the other, for He pervades all worlds equally. What then do our sages mean by saying that God desired an abode in the lower realms? Okay, so let's first take our very simple way of defining lower. And that is spatially. For sure, we can't say that Hashem desired a place to live in this physically, spatially lowest place. Because not only doesn't that apply in terms of Hashem, it doesn't even apply to any other world. All the other worlds are spiritual and physical place does not apply to any other world but our own. So when we say lowest, certainly it can mean physically. Even look within our physical corporeal world. We have spiritual ideas within our physical corporeal world, such as a rule of logic. A rule of logic such as one plus one is two. Is this rule of logic confined to space? Can I say it exists in my house, but it doesn't exist in yours? It exists in Australia, but it doesn't exist in Europe? You can't say that because it's something spiritual that does not come to be confined by the realms of space. Okay, this is true of something spiritually, how much more so when we speak about Hashem. But now, when we say that spirituality does not come to be confined to the realms of space, we are also making a negative statement about it. Because when it doesn't come to be confined within the realms of space, it also means that it doesn't even exist in our physical space because it doesn't take up space at all. How do we define something in terms of space? Does it take up space? Does it have the properties that apply to physical space? The reason that I'm going this philosophical is because I want to say that when we speak about Hashem, that of course is not true. So let's say ideas. Ideas apply in the world of intellect, but they may not apply in a world of emotion. 
Emotion apply in the world of sentience, but they may not apply in the world of physicality, such as rocks and water. Words and sentences apply in the world of a human being, but in the world of an animal, sentences mean nothing. Each of these things have a world in which they exist and a world in which they don't. The fact that we say that spirituality is not confined by space is a compliment, but it's also a detractor. It means that it doesn't actually exist in that realm of physicality of space. Hashem is not confined by space, and yet he is completely and totally present within every space. Okay? So when we say the lowest realms, we can't mean physically. That Hashem desired to have a place in the lowest realms. Lowest is not a term that applies physically, and that's because it's a term that applies only to our world. It doesn't apply to the other worlds which are spiritual. And it doesn't apply to Hashem because Hashem is not confined by space. That we would say one thing is lower and one thing is higher to Hashem. But now let's move up a step. And let's talk about spiritually. Do we mean to say that Hashem desired a place to dwell in the spiritually lowest realms? So now again, let's examine spiritually higher and lower and see if Hashem is confined to that, which of course he is not. The Rambam in Hilchas Yisaydi HaTayra, speaking about the angels, tells us that when we say that one, one angel is higher than another, we don't mean in a spatial sense as in one is sitting up on a higher space than another. We mean it in a different way, like when you say one sage is greater than the other, is higher up in level than another, we mean spiritually he is in a higher space. Now, if these terms of spiritual highness or lowness, height or depth, let's say, were to apply to Hashem, then we would say that the higher spiritual worlds are closer to Hashem because they contain more of his light while the lower spiritual worlds are further away from Hashem. They're lower because they contain less of his light. Like, for example, let's say a teacher gives a very profound lecture that's way beyond the scope of most of his class. But then you'll have the one or two very gifted students who are listening to the teacher and they understand most of his class. The higher students who understand most of the teacher's class have more of the teacher's mind within themselves. They understood and absorbed most of the lecture, more of the lecture, and therefore they are closer to the teacher because they contain more of the teacher's mind within themselves. Whereas the less gifted students understood and absorbed less of the lecture, therefore their teacher is less present within their mind, and therefore they contain less of the teacher within themselves. That is true spiritually. But when we speak about Hashem, if something were to be more high to him, that it contained more of him, it means that it is a better suited vessel to contain his light. We need to understand that there is nothing, not physically 
and not even spiritually and not even the highest spiritual world is a vessel that's suitable to contain his light. There is no such thing as a, a student in this class that understands anything of the lecture. Nobody has the implements or the vessels to contain Hashem's light. Not in the physical world and not in the spiritual world. There is nothing that is enough of a vessel to contain Hashem's light. And therefore, there's no such thing as higher or lower, not even spiritually. Now, again, I want to make a distinction between the analogy that we used and then the way it applies to Hashem. When we say that there was a teacher who gave a lecture that was so profound that it flew right over the heads of all of the students, even the most genius student, and therefore not one of them understood the lecture, therefore not one of them was a vessel to receive the lecture, and therefore the, the teacher's mind is not present in any of the students' minds because none of them understood and absorbed the lecture, right? But when we speak about Hashem, while no world and no level, no being, not supernal and not physical, is enough of a vessel to absorb Hashem's light, it doesn't mean that He is not present, God forbid, in any of them. It means that He is equally present, totally and essentially within each and every one of them, equally. Not one of them is enough of a vessel to absorb his light. And so therefore, he pervades them all totally equally. Okay, so let's wrap up again what we said till we got to this point. We're saying that Hashem desired to have an abode in this lowest physical realm. Or I didn't say physical Hashem, that's not what the Chachamim said. The Chachamim said that Hashem desired to have an abode in the lowest realms. And we're trying to understand the depth of their statement. What does it mean lowest? We looked at physical and we said, could it mean physically? For sure Hashem is not limited physically. That's for sure. Not even spirituality is limited physically. And furthermore, the term physical space doesn't apply to any world besides our own. So it can't mean lowest in terms of our physical world, physical space, because the terms of spiritual, physical space don't even apply to the other worlds. The only world in which it applies is our physical world. So forget about that. It doesn't mean lowest physically, because the term physically lowest applies only in this world, not to any other world. And then we looked spiritually. We said, could it mean that he means to say that spiritually the world that is lowest that's the realm where he wants to dwell but there's no such thing even spiritually to say higher and lower to Hashem if we say that something is higher to Hashem spiritually and something is lower to Hashem spiritually we would mean to say that something that is spiritually higher is more of a vessel to absorb Hashem's light while something that is lower is less of a vessel to absorb Hashem's light but actually there is nothing that is a vessel to absorb Hashem's light. There is no vessel in any of the worlds that is suitable for Hashem's light, no matter how great and how spiritual. This being the case, Hashem pervades all the worlds equally. So now we really have to understand what do they mean when they said that he wants an abode in the lowest realms. Okay. 
Ella, be your hyena. The explanation of the matter, however, is that Hashem desired an abode in that realm considered lower within the ranks of the world as follows. Before the world, any world was created, there was only he alone, one and unique, filling all the space in which he created the world. Anything that could be conceived of as a space or possibility for creation was filled with the Ain Sof light. So let's examine how things were before the world was created. First of all, Hashem was the only being, that's for sure. There was only one existence, and that was Hashem. And another thing we know, as the Zohar says, Les Asar the Zohar says like this, Les Asar there is no space devoid of him. That was true before creation. Before creation, he was the only being in existence, and there was no space devoid of him. Guess what? Not only was that be- true before creation, that's actually true right now after the worlds have been created. He is the only being in existence, and there is no space devoid of him. Now, that's very hard for us created beings to absorb and digest. We live in a world that's teeming with creatures, with people, with things everywhere. It seems that there's tons of existences besides for Hashem, that's the way we perceive things. So previously in Tanya, the Altarab explained this idea to us from various angles, but let's look at an example from given by the Arizal of one drop of water compared to the vast body of the world's oceans. One drop of water, when thrown into the vast oceans, just ceases to be. It's not there anymore. All you see at that point is the vast body of oceans. You don't see the one drop. It's just nothing. When I ask you what is there, you don't say there's one drop within the ocean. You say, all I see is the ocean. Whenever something small is subsumed with something, within something larger, it loses its individual identity. For another example of this would be a small flame. A small flame that, that's, then, that, that then gets absorbed into a larger fire loses its individual identity. It ceases to be. Now, this analogy is good so that we can concretize the idea in our mind but actually, of course, there's missing something essential, and that is, in order to get to the, a more, uh, more uh, accurate analogy, we would have to go to much more abstract terms. And we did previously in Tanya, when we spoke about the presence of a word within the emotion, if you remember. But instead of going down that path, I'm just going to say like this. This is only good in order for us to concretize the idea in our mind, because actually one drop does have significance to the vast bodies of ocean. What in fact is the ocean? It's made up of all these one drops. And if you add one drop of water to the vast bodies of ocean, then in fact, the ocean have become one drop larger, even though it's so insignificant, but nevertheless, there is a significance of one drop to the bodies of ocean. But what if you're taking one speck of something that is so worthless, and then it gets subsumed into something that's infinitely greater, not just physically or quantitatively, but even qualitatively. And let's say one speck of dust in the vast bodies of ocean, and I don't think that that's a good analogy, but just to bring the analogy of something that's worthless compared to something that has much more value, then it's completely lost. So now, realize that Hashem 
pervades all the worlds. He is completely and totally present right here in this physical space where we are. Do you remember that when something that is so insignificant and so small is absorbed within something much greater than itself, it ceases to have an existence? Well, guess what? Right now, we are subsumed within Hashem's presence. The entire creation is subsumed within Hashem's presence. Can we think of the entire creation as being but one drop? And Hashem as being that vast body of ocean? Can we understand more clearly that just as He was one and alone and completely unique before creation, just now, exactly the same way, He is one and alone, the only existence that there is, and there is no space devoid of Him? We are just that one drop. Creation is just that one drop. And everything is all subsumed within Hashem's presence who pervades all the worlds. That's what the Navi Yeshaya said. The entire earth is filled with His glory. There really is nothing else besides Hashem. So now, what did the Chachamim mean when they said that He wants an abode in these lower realms? Okay, we're getting there. In his view, indeed, it is still the same now. Creation wrought no change in his unity. He is one alone now, just as he was prior to creation. So what is the change then? The change applies only to the recipients of his vivifying force and his light. Before creation, there was none to receive the life force and light. Creation brought into being these recipients. So there has been a change, not to Hashem, but to us and to all of creation. Beforehand, we didn't sense ourselves to have an independent existence. We didn't have an existence as we know it. Once there has been creation, that was the most meaningful change. That Genesis was the beginning of our existence. So to Hashem, there was absolutely no change. But to the created beings, there has been a change. Who receive this life force and light by way of numerous garments which veil and conceal Hashem's light. For without such garments, they could not bear its intensity and they would cease to exist. So all of creation from the highest spiritual world to our lowest physical world, the only way that they can exist is by not being cognizant of the absolute truth. What's the absolute truth? The absolute truth is that ain od milvado. There is nothing else besides Hashem. Hashem is the only existence. If any of the created beings, not just us physical people, but even the supernal angels, if they were to perceive this truth, they would not be able to maintain existence. They would realize there is only Hashem and they would cease to be. At each level, there are different amounts of garments. The less garments, the more the beings perceive the truth of Hashem's reality. And the more garments, the more the beings consider themselves to be an existence of their own. Listen to this. Our Chachamim said that Moshe Rabbeinu, who was the greatest prophet of all, he beheld Hashem be'espaklaria hameira with a clear looking glass. While the other prophets who succeeded him 
saw Hashem, perceived Hashem through a foggy lens. Moshe Rabbeinu, who saw with the clearest looking glass, he said, Ki lo yirani ha'adam v'chai, no man can see me and live. He said, I cannot see anything. While the prophets who came after him subsequently, like Yeshayahu Hanavi, who said, Behold, I saw Hashem. Like Yechazkel Hanavi, who said, I beheld a divine image. Paradoxically, the less clearly they were able to see, the more they saw. The higher that the being is, the better you see, the more you realize there is nothing else besides Hashem. And the more cloudy your vision, the more you think you see. The distance from creator to creation is not the same as the distance from creation to creator. This is how Rabbi Steinsaltz puts it. It's, he compares it to the, the one-way mirror or the two-way mirror. I don't know exactly how it's called. From one side, a person sees themselves and then behind them, they see an entire world. From the other side, there's nothing. It's all clear. From our side, we perceive ourselves. From Hashem's side, there's nothing. There's no partition. From our side, there's many, many curtains. Hashem's side, there's no curtain at all. Now, if any being were exposed to more of the divine truth that they could handle, they would cease to maintain existence. The Talmud tells us that Hashem eradicated a group of angels who opined that man wasn't worth making, right? And how did he eradicate them? The Talmud says, That he extended his little finger among them and he burned them. What does that mean? It means that he revealed more of himself to them that they could handle and they can no longer maintain existence. So in order for any existence to maintain existence from the highest spiritual being to us in this physical world, there must, must be these veils that conceal the truth. Because even the highest beings whose whole reality is just about Hashem and loving Hashem and, and being nullified before Him, they're still a being who senses love who senses awe, there's a something, there's something who senses their own existence. In order for them to feel like they have any existence of their own, they can't perceive that Hashem is the only reality. So we have to remember that there has been no change at all since creation. Hashem is one, alone, unique, just now after creation, as He was exactly the same way before creation. So what is the change? The change is only to the created beings. To us, there has been a very great change because we receive our life force through many veils that conceal Hashem's light. So it is written, for no man can see me and live. Furthermore, not only man, a physical being, but even spiritual beings, such as angels, are unable to receive the divine light and life force without concealing garments. As our rabbis of blessed memory interpret the word vachai and live in this verse as referring to the angels. Thus, even the angels called chayot cannot see. They cannot see godliness except by way of garments which conceal him, thereby enabling them to receive his light. Okay, so the simple meaning of this verse is 
Moshe Rabbeinu asked Hashem, show me your glory. And Hashem said, I can't show you my glory. Or not, I shouldn't say I can't. Hashem said he will not show him his glory. For man cannot see me and live. That's the simple reading of the verse. But our sages interpret it on a deeper level. And they said like this, Because man cannot see me, and not only can man not see me, and even the holiest supernal angels called the Chayot, they too cannot see me. And they cannot see me and maintain their existence. The degree of concealment varies, however, from world to world and from level to level. Here, the distinction between higher and lower realms become valid as the Alter Rebbe continues. So I'm going to wrap up what we said until now. And that is A. We said that there is a purpose in creation. And what is the purpose in creation? The purpose in creation is that Hashem desired to have a dwelling place in the lowest realms. Now that seems simple and straightforward enough, except... That loses meaning when we speak about Hashem. Because there's no such thing as higher or lower when we speak about Hashem. We speak about Hashem physically, spatially. Of course there's no higher and lower. He's not limited to those realms. But even spiritually, He is not limited to any realm. No world, no being, no matter how higher spiritual, is a suitable vessel to receive Hashem's light. So these terminologies of higher and lower are completely meaningless when we speak about Hashem. And because there is no being and no world that is capable or a suitable vessel to receive Hashem's light, and yet Hashem is present, that means that He pervades all worlds equally. There is no world that's a vessel to receive Hashem's light. And Hashem is totally present, so the way He pervades all worlds is exactly equally the way that he think about the highest world, the world of Hatzilut, a world so high that the Alter Rebbe couldn't even say the word without stuttering. When he would write the word, he would write Atzi and then make a, a hypo, uh, what's this called? An apostrophe at the end. Because he couldn't finish writing the world, world, word and world. <laughs> he couldn't finish writing the name of that world, right? How totally present Hashem is in that world, guess what? That's how much he pervades this world. He pervades all worlds equally. So now, we have to understand, again, what did our sages mean when they said that Hashem wanted a uh, dwelling place in this lowest realms? Hashem is exactly the same here now as He was before creation. Just as Hashem was one alone, pervading, He was the only existence, and He pervaded all empty space before the world was created. Now, what space are we talking about? Of course, we're not talking about physical space. Works of Kabbalah speak about a divine level called the place of the world. And this divine level is a level that gives possibility for creation. So Hashem filled all space and He was the only existence before creation. Guess what? Even now, after creation, Hashem is the only being and He pervades all of existence, even post-creation. So what is the change that happened at the creation of the world? It's to us created beings. That we receive His light and life force through many numerous garments which veil and conceal Hashem's light. Because if He would not have veiled Himself, we would not be able to maintain existence. Not only would man not be able to maintain existence, but even the highest supernal angels would not be able to maintain existence if Hashem did not veil his light. So this is where we got up to. 
And we're still left with examining how Hashem's light is different in each of the world. And that's what we'll take next lesson. And I'm opening it up now for questions and discussion.